0: Jay Rosen is traveling this week, so I have a special guest co-host, Karen Woody, professor of law at Washington and Lee. I know you will enjoy her thoughts on some of the top compliance and ethics stories from this week in FCPA. And now I'd like to share with you a few thoughts about Ethisphere and their world's most ethical company awards. Do you work for one of the world's most ethical companies? Well, why not get the recognition you deserve for building a world-class ethics and compliance program at your company? You can do so by applying now to be considered for the 2022 class of World's Most Ethical Companies honorees by completing Ethisphere's online assessment. But more than simply completing the assessment, you can receive a scorecard that allows you to benchmark your compliance program against other honorees, and you'll also receive a three-month associate membership to the Business Ethics Leadership Alliance if you complete the application by the November 12 deadline. To get started, download the free application guide and learn more about the process by visiting worldsmostethicalcompanies.com. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to This Week in FCPA, episode 269 for the week ending, September 17, 2021, the Focus on SEC edition. Jay is once again traveling, so this week we are joined by special co-host Karen Woody. That's Professor Karen Woody to those in the know. And I know you're going to enjoy her comments on this special Focus on SEC edition because, amazingly enough, Karen is an SEC expert and one of her uh, key areas of research, writing, and teaching. So, Karen, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for uh, agreeing to be the co host this week.
1: Oh, thank you, Tom. It's always such a pleasure to be on these with you.
0: So, Karen, we have a series of stories uh, about Coinbase versus the SEC, and we've linked to them all in the show notes. But I was uh, really uh, mm-hmm. wanted to engage in a broader discussion with you about this issue, the public nature of the SPAT, uh, what does uh, the SEC's position Coinbase. So maybe if you could uh, kind of set the stage by telling us what is Coinbase and how did they at least potentially run afoul of the SEC and why are we seeing all of this in public?
1: It's a great question, and it certainly has captured everyone's attention in the last few months, but certainly has ramped up more recently. So Coinbase is essentially a broker-dealer for for cryptocurrencies, um, and they have a number of different products that they have, but the one that is really sort of attracting sort of the regulator's eyes um, right now is what is being rolled out as a new uh, service, which is called their Lend product. I guess it's essentially lending um, you know, consolidated cryptocurrencies is what's happening. Um, and that, you know, is is something that is problematic, I think, to regulators because they see that as uh, unregulated and unregistered security offering. Um, and so the SEC has clearly asked a few questions of Coinbase to figure out what is happening and what, if this is, meets the definition of a security, and if so... Coinbase would need to register that, um, and so just recently we've seen Coinbase's CEO Brian Armstrong sort of take to the wires, if you will, to get on Twitter and um, and on a few blogs that seems to to point out that the SEC uh, seems to. Uh, be poking around a lot, and if nothing else, um, not being very clear about what it is they're going to demand of Coinbase. Uh, but there's, you know, actually a decent debate over who is sort of more in, um, in the right here. Uh, according to Armstrong, you would think he was he's very much the aggrieved party, very much trying to, you know, just follow the laws, but the SEC hasn't been clear what the law is, um, that kind of idea. Uh, However, I think most people, um, certainly in the securities field, see what this lend product is as being a pretty straightforward security offering, um, in which case the SEC may be well within its rights to ask uh, questions about it and to figure out uh, what Coinbase is doing. What happened is just recently the SEC sent over a Wells notice to Coinbase, which is really the first step of the SEC starting an investigation. But at that point, it really is, you know, we need to have a conversation about what you're doing. Uh, you have the opportunity to defend yourself or explain yourself. Um, if you receive a Wells notice, it's sort of an invitation to a conversation, but very much an indication that we're we're at sort of the... Five yard line before we uh, initiate an in, an um, in enforcement action and certainly uh, wider investigation into into what's going on, and so um, I guess in receipt of that Wells notice, Brian Armstrong sort of very much uh, publicly create you know created a record here of his uh, well his disdain for the SEC's process under this. Um, so that's that's where we are. Uh, I think um, in 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 terms of where we are. I've uh, sorry, seen um in recent weeks it is interesting and you pointed out the public nature of this is, this is not typical I mean oftentimes wellness aren't um you know certainly not publicly known it's it's still sort of behind closed doors a little bit that's the nature of what's going on um it's certainly just uh it's definitely an official document by the SEC but uh it's it's not one that you know that is that is sort of openly, there's not a press release about a Wells notice. So, so the public nature that Armstrong took with this um, was a little bit on, you know, not typical.
0: So what about uh, Chairman Gensler, SEC Chair Gensler, testified in front of Congress this week, and uh, I was trying to think of another time I had heard an SEC chair uh, so publicly respond and he did not name Coinbase by name, but he did all but mm-hmm. that. Uh, is that something you, you have seen? I, I was trying to think back, and it may even have been around Enron, but I'm not even sure if, if there was a, a public testimony by the SEC chair uh, around Enron. Uh, what, why, why was Gensler so public? Was it in response to Coinbase, or is this something that just uh, clearly excises him?
1: Well, I, my own opinion about that is that it's maybe twofold. It certainly was in response, I think, to Armstrong and and just the idea of how much press this has gotten, and Coinbase being, you know, the first publicly traded, you know, broker deal for for crypto. So already Coinbase is very much in the sights of the SEC. People are already, you know, the SEC is already a little bit uh, nervous about regulation of crypto, and Coinbase sort of is the biggest target for that. But I mean, that sort of dovetails which. Uh, with what I think is the other reason, which is, you know, this is a space that does feel a little like the Wild West, and the SEC is really trying to get its arms around it. So I think even absent maybe Armstrong's public comments, Gensler might have said something very similar, saying, you know, this is a problem, um, maybe not a problem, depending on how you see it, but this is certainly a new area that the SEC certainly thinks is crying out for additional regulation to ensure that investors are protected. They are, he, you know, Gensler's asking for additional rules and regulations um, from his staff on crypto. So I think either way, Gensler would have certainly said something, but you're right. This sort of public obviousness of who he was discussing, um, uh, is a little unheard of. But at the same time, Coinbase is sort of the first mover, at least to be on traded on the market. So uh, it it was an obvious sort of jab.
0: Karen, could you go back to the Wells Notice process? And and uh, back when you were in private practice, um, did you have to respond on behalf of a client for a Wells Notice? And what's is there an internal process from the corporation to really get their ducks in a row and then formally respond and then perhaps sit down with the sec and, and put forward your arguments to them. And uh, you said about being on the five yard line, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to score. Can you sometimes persuade the sec to go another direction or present them with legal or factual arguments that they might not have considered?
1: That's correct. So, um, It is certainly an indication of the seriousness of it, and in my practice in in D.C., uh, there's definitely some truth to the sort of um, chummy nature, sort of revolving door of the regulators and the defense bar, and so sometimes there are sort of our conversations prior to a Wells Notice saying, hey, you know, this might be coming down the pike. The Wells Notice is a pretty formal document, however, as I said, it's not sort of the most, uh, you know, it's... It's still the five-yard line. You still have an opportunity to respond. It is a very formal response, you know, a long sort of documented response that the company provides to the SEC that does end up being discussed and 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 entered into a conversation with the SEC. Much more sort of on the record, a uh, a a formal process as opposed to just sort of calling. You know, maybe a former colleague who's now defending the company. Where that kind of would happen before the Wells process, and it is specific to the SEC. Other agencies have similar, maybe processes, but the Wells, notice in itself, is um, and is what is called at, is what it's called at the SEC.
0: So, where could all of this lead? Could we see an investigation and enforcement action? Could we see resolution? Uh, I think you and I at least are leaning to uh, the position that this is a securities offering and there does need to be registration. Um, But could there be a settlement and kind of everybody goes home getting half of what they wanted?
1: That's a good question. I don't, I don't really see how they still offer the lend product without registering it unless they sort of, drastically altered it's interesting because coinbase sort of wants its cake and to and wants to eat it too in the sense that it doesn't want this to be considered a security which is sort of a pooling of you know of investments and in the definition of an investment contract that we see from an old uh case from the supreme court that you know involves pooling of assets uh and then a return and an expected return on on uh on the investment um at the same time that they say, hey, this isn't a security, this is just a lending thing. This is where we're, we're acting more like a bank. They also don't really want any bank regulations applied to them. Um, it is interesting because it is actually, there's a second case that is actually maybe more applicable here. And that's what's called the Revis case. Uh, and in that case, that looks at whether or not a note is considered a security. So other than sort of an, you know, uh, Get rich quick scheme. This is one where it is exactly what uh, Coinbase is doing in that it's a, it's a lending with a set return on on that um, on that investment. So uh, sure, Coinbase wants to make say this looks more maybe like a note or like a loan, but there are enough factors uh, that we saw from that case that is um, like I said the the Revis case that one. Makes clear that these—it's was it's, the term here is the family resemblance test. If this, you know, looks like a duck, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, and in this case, duck is a security. <laughs> That's uh, how they get to this idea. Of, then you have to register that. And based even on sort of the facts of that case and what Coinbase is doing, it's it's so similar that I can't imagine anyone would come out any different way than thinking this clearly meets the family resemblance test uh, and would be considered a security. So uh, I don't think Coinbase has a very strong argument on their side at all. Um, I appreciate that Armstrong really wants to get some sort of sympathy Uh from sort of the masses of how, you know, what he considers an opaque process and that kind of thing. But this, the LEND product in particular is one that I think is, is will have to be registered. So, query what they do. Do they pull that product or have to sort of, you know, revamp it in some way that where there's not a set return on your um, investment to it? I, I'm not sure how they would rework it. Um, and so, I think they would have to go through a registration. I can't imagine they will want to do that, though.
0: <laughs> Well, perhaps we could save that discussion for a later day because we had some other stories that I wanted to get to. Our first one is from Kyle Brasser uh, writing in Compliance Week, talking about uh, one of the speakers at Compliance Week's ESG conference. And uh, that speaker was Jim Massey, uh, who was previously uh, VP of ESG Sustainability Ethics and Compliance at AstraZeneca and he's now off in the consulting world. And he really talked about why compliance needs to uh, lead the ESG effort. He said that uh, he believes doing the right thing is the crux of being a good, sustainable corporation and a good leading corporation. And he, within the corporation, he believes compliance officers are per- perfectly positioned to get on with the sustainability of it, or rather get involved Uh, He said that compliance is not a defense, it's an offense. And more importantly, compliance works with a wide variety of corporate actors so that uh, it would seem to be a natural extension for compliance. So uh, I've been advocating strongly that compliance really needs to lead the ESG effort, and I think uh, Jim really gave us some additional points. Uh, I hate to say it, but is there another cheating scandal at KPMG? (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, that was a great article too I'm glad Matt Mac Kelly pulled that one out That was, uh, it, it looked like it I mean, they really were sort of taking each other's test Didn't it seem to be that I thought that was very uh, interesting And maybe, you know, coincides with Kyle's piece About how, you know, compliance needs to be more proactive Instead of simply reactive And here we have someone who There obviously was somebody maybe asleep at the switch Who didn't realize that this was occurring Because it was a pretty pervasive cheating Going on down in KPMG Australia, so I mean it's KPMG to the defense bar. I hate to say it was really the gift that kept on giving. (laughs) There always was something (laughs) that you needed to help KPMG out. It felt like when we were in practice, but it seemed that way. But it it um, it seemed not. It seemed that they were very um, forthcoming. They were very sort of uh, contrite when they had had been called out. I think they even met piece your remarks about their extraordinary cooperation with the PCAOB. So I hope they have you've uh, seen the error of their ways.
0: Well, uh, I'm going to have to say, in my mind, that's an open question, Karen. So uh, next up, we have a, a really interesting article on leadership lessons from the fall of Kabul from Sandra Erez. And uh, I'm going to, for the first time, give an award for my article of the week Uh, To Sandra for this piece. Uh, It's more than simply because of the content. It's her use of literature, of philosophy, of Greek myths, and a wide variety of other uh, resources to really illustrate several different lessons to be learned from the um, fall of Kabul. Uh, She talks about uh, Icarus and Daedalus, flying too close to the sun. She asks, why did good people do bad things? She uh, focuses on Immanuel Kant, the critique of pure reason. I hope you have not had to read that. I had to read that in freshman philosophy. I'm still recovering from that. Uh, She talks about taking personal responsibility, and she does chide President Biden for, on the one hand, uh, showing empathy, on the other hand, blaming the prior administration. Uh, And but I really was intrigued by her ending, which is uh, citing back to the ancient Greek uh, theater, which is history repeats itself ad nauseum. And I couldn't really think of a better way to end this. But the lesson is uh, that you have to close the curtain, you have to take the heat, and you have to move on because what's past in the past, what is past is in the past, Uh And that uh, with this uh, fall of Kabul, uh, the fallout, uh, Biden just has to uh, take it going forward and go forward and learn uh, whatever lessons he could. So uh, really a great article, Sandra. Thanks uh, for all the references. Um, Karen, what are the three big issues in this year's proxy season? We'll be right back with more stories on This Week in FCPA after a quick word from our sponsor. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com
1: slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Oh, another great article that I appreciated you uh, highlighting here. Oh, man. So I read this as sort of, you know, the big three of the institutional investors really are still pushing um, for diversity equity inclusion so Dei as well as ESG um, proposals on the proxy uh, on the proxies that we saw over this season which they sort of um, estimate to be you know roughly July to this past year June. And having looked at a number of these sort of fortune 50 proxy statements, looking at the same idea, especially focused on DEI. I spent a lot of time this spring working on that type of a project as well. And so I, I find this such a great summary of what this past year has looked like in terms of what's been on the proxies. Um, and you know, how powerful, you know, the fact that these three institutional investors, uh, are when they have been really trying to put their money where their mouth is on these on these initiatives, uh, and you see here this idea that you know they have uh, voted even against. I mean, the one that really jumped out to me that they voted contrary to the management recommendation um, at Berkshire Hathaway about requesting more DEI oversight to their policies, and you know they have this, this article wonderful sort of summary statistics about how many shareholder proposals. Um, in comparison to previous years, and then certainly this year, uh, dealt with things like DEI, ESG, other social issues. Um, when I looked at some of the proxies for, say, Amazon, things like that, the, that was the you know certainly the majority of issues on on the slate for the proxy, as well as other ones that we've seen that I think are still related to ESG, things like you know pay ratios, say on pay, more uh, voice of from uh, regular employees as opposed to only uh, C-suite directors and officers. One of their proxies requested sort of an hourly employee to be in the boardroom. Which that got voted down. I would say almost all these still end up, you know, not getting a ton of traction. But the fact that the big three are really pushing this um, is, I think, uh, a, is, is powerful. Obviously, we saw the NASDAQ rule come out this year, too. So this is now sort of required for the NASDAQ companies. But I have to think that um, – you know the buy-in from these big three is what is really uh, what moved that needle a lot too.
0: So Karen, next up, we had an interesting article from Dick Casson over at the FCPA blog and it was about corporate FCPA recidivism. And he listed uh, thirteen cases uh, where companies had were two-time FCPA losers. I will note for the record that I've worked at two of those. Uh, so, uh, I, am not suggesting there's correlation or even causation there, but he asked the question why these companies were recidivist. So in the two I worked at, I would certainly point towards a culture of, uh, that sales and business development were the most important thing over anything else. So I don't know about the other companies, Mm. but he really asks why companies would do this and, Um, he he concludes uh, with a line from uh, Professor Peter Henning, I believe, and Henning said that, quote, deterrence has little impact for economic crimes when there is so low a probability of getting caught, and concludes that uh, perhaps these companies just didn't think they were going to get caught. Obviously they were wrong uh, because they did get caught, but uh, Uh, According to Dick's numbers, 5.5% of all FCPA enforcement actions have been uh, recidivist actions. So uh, that's a fairly low number, uh, but I think it is cause for looking at. But uh, you do have to ask the question, is how can a company that has an enforcement action uh, three or four years later? uh, So you have to wonder about the culture of that company. Karen, in preparing for this week's uh, – this week – uh, article, I came across a new term for me, the great resignation. So could you tell us what the great resignation is and why it relates to uh, companies trying to give employees meaningful work?
1: Well, uh, I think the great re- resignation, according to that piece you sent, was this idea that employees are put, fed up and they're done. They're they're leaving uh, jobs, sort of, and sort of unprecedented numbers and some of this is because you know we've seen sort of back to your comment about culture this idea that um, people want to work somewhere where they feel they have a purpose and that the work is meaningful uh, and so they you know rather than that being motivated only by uh, and the typical incentives salary or other perks we have this idea that this, you know, there is something deeper than that that motivates people. Uh, and that, you know, the lack of that being present in a number of maybe jobs is why people have had this this great resignation to sort of, I mean, to, to find their passion, I guess, is, is what the takeaway was from that. I thought that was a very fascinating article, and I, I feel like we've seen some of these Concepts teed up a little bit when people talk about differences between generations, that millennials are much more oriented and motivated by things that are bigger. Um, sort of they, they push things like the climate change initiatives and things that uh, aren't quite as, um, I, w- I would say the term selfish, but not, not necessarily in a negative sense, but just not necessarily as individual, but sort of broader themes and, and concepts that they uh, find purpose in doing. So I thought this was a very, very fascinating piece.
0: Karen, next up we have an article by lawyers from Wachtell Lipton in the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance, and it takes a look at a recent case involving Boeing and its uh, board of directors. And it's a really interesting case. It follows the Caremark line of decisions that the Delaware Supreme Court has recently talked about, uh, really putting a burden on directors to be involved with the risks of their organization, and of course, for Boeing as an airplane or airline manufacturer, that what should, should be the highest risk is safety. And this is a shareholder derivative action, and it unique to shareholder actions. Uh, there could be an early resolution, or at least an attempt by the uh, defendants to end the case with. A, I think it would be a 12b-6 motion, but uh, maybe there's a special motion for these kinds of cases. But essentially. Uh, It's a motion for summary judgment or a motion notwithstanding the facts. And that's going to play into this case, it turns out, in a way uh, that's a little unusual. But the court really excoriated Boeing's board in a way they don't typically do uh, to boards for not only failing to elevate safety uh, to the board level for oversight, but even going so far as to suggest that the board may have lied to investors and the public. And I can't remember a significant U.S. corporation being charged with that, uh, at least by the Delaware Supreme Court. But what the procedural, and of course being the complete procedure geeks that we are, I knew you'd love this, Karen. The, um, because of the procedural nature of the pleading stage, the court had to accept the plaintiff's pleadings as fact. And so when the plaintiff said Boeing lied, the court had to accept that as fact at this stage. And so typically corporations use a 12B6 motion in shareholder suits to, to get it thrown out pretty quickly because there's no cause of action. Uh, but here, because of the pleadings, uh, the corporation uh, was not able to overcome those with counterfacts or any other type of evidence. Uh, so that was a, a really interesting part. Uh, but the, the Delaware Supreme Court has really uh, toughened up and, and strengthened the Caremark decision, starting with the Bluebell case, Marchand, uh, 18 months ago. And the article points out there had been six uh uh, Caremark decisions in the past 12 months, which is, is very unusual. And if you're out there uh, counseling or advising boards, uh, they need to understand this is a real risk. And when you have Boeing shareholders suing the Boeing board, uh, that's a real case. And I understand you may have d insurance, but nevertheless, it's uh, Cognizant Technologies paid $95 million uh, around an FCPA violation for their uh failure at their board level. So this could get very costly very quickly, and you don't have to get a billion-dollar settlement. Uh, You can get 10 $100 million settlements. Uh, It can be very lucrative for the Plains Bar, very costly. So I thought this was a a really interesting case uh, for us to look at. Karen, next up, our colleague Mike Volkoff wrote about the intersection of Culture and corporate reputation, and although uh, I think that is talked about a little, I really appreciated Mike's focus on uh, reputation. What did you see in this article that interested you?
1: Well, what I what I really enjoyed about this article was almost sort of the accounting nature of culture and of reputation. He's really using this as you know, as he says, even in the title, as an asset. And so, what made me harken back to when I had to teach uh, sort of basic securities laws to. Uh, accounting majors, um, and I really wish I had learned more about accounting. I hope they learned more about securities law, but, but I do. Th- I was such an interesting way to think through this idea that this is something that um, nearly could be sort of quantified as something that is so important to the com- uh, to the company that it should it should go on you know nearly on the sort of the on on the balance sheet in the sense that it is one of the most important assets that a company can have. So I just I thought that was an interesting sort of uh, way to think about corporate culture as one of the most sort of long standing assets. Um, that was my thought about it.
0: So Karen, our final article really uh, is an honor of you uh, because it quotes Learned Hand. And for those non-lawyers listening to this podcast, Learned Hand is one of the most famous. Uh, court of Appeals justices. He was also a trial court judge in the federal system in the 20th century, and I think you teach torts. Uh, don't do you still teach torts? And I'm sure learned. It, I do, I do, I'm yes. sure learned at hand comes up uh, at some point in torts. But uh, our friend Jeff Kaplan, who writes the always great conflict of interest blog, uh, quoted learned at hand uh, not for a uh, legal proposition. But for a business ethics proposition, I thought it was uh, pretty applicable, so I'm just going to read it. Uh, Learned Hand said, The spirit of liberty is the spirit which is not too sure that it's right. And Jeff uses this as an entree into discussing the need for humility uh, within the business ethics arena and for the compliance practitioner. And that's something that uh, I certainly uh, ascribe to that Compliance officers need to have humility because uh, there are going to be missteps in a compliance program because human beings are involved. And so I really uh, appreciated that. He he really tied that to to someone you and I have studied and and probably looked up to quite a lot as a jurist learned at hand. Uh, So that concludes our articles. I'm going to run us through uh, some podcasts and events. I'm going to start off with, uh, are you stressed out? As a compliance officer, well, CCI, Corporate Compliance Insights, wants to hear from you because they're doing a survey about stress. So we've linked to it in the uh, show notes. Henry Cronk wrote about it in CCI. We've linked to his article. Um, I had my uh, concluded my podcast series on looking back on 9-11. It was a six-part podcast series, uh, very personal, very moving. Uh, looking at six people whose lives dramatically changed from 9-11, what that meant for them professionally, and then they reflected back um, 20 years later with some very personal and poignant reflections. Uh, I've rolled out a new podcast, and I took things in a little bit different direction. Uh, I, With my co-host, Greg Greenberg, Greg is the author of a book called Effing Argentina, and it's 11 chapters and stories of exasperation. So if you are exasperated, if you are overworked, overleveraged, overtired, tired, overwhelmed, this is the podcast for you. We have some great stories. Uh, We go over some great stories Greg wrote. Uh, Episode one is out, and uh, I think everyone with children can relate to this story. It's the dreaded parent meeting at The elementary school of your child, uh, your child's first elementary school. And we talk about things from the size of the chairs you have to sit in to the questions you have to hear to the questions you have to answer. Uh, And it's it's really a lot of fun. So I hope you'll check that out ethosphere has opened up submissions for the world's most ethical company awards for 2022 Uh, you can find out more application more information on the application process Uh, we've linked to that in the show notes and i have uh, my new book out the compliance handbook second edition i've linked to that it's also a feature on breaking news so if you want to check out what breaking news had to say and learn why my daughter wants you to buy this book I would urge you to check that out. So, Karen, that brings us uh, to the end of this episode. This has uh, been a ton of fun. I wanted to thank you again, and uh, I hope you'll come back and join us again on This Week in FCPA.
1: Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you, Tom.
0: This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. Are you exasperated? Are you overworked, overwhelmed, overtired, and overstressed? Well, I have a new podcast for you, Effing Argentina, where with the book's author, Greg Greenberg, we take a look at 11 modern day tales of exasperation. Effing Argentina is available on the Compliance Podcast Network. It's also available on video format on YouTube, so check it out. This weekend, FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. I hope you will check out my six-part podcast series, Looking Back on 9-11, which is on the innovation and compliance feed of the Compliance Podcast Network. It's my most personal podcast series, and I hope you find it a good way to reflect about 20 years after 9-11. Please plan to join Jay and I next week when we take a look at stories that caught our eye. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com, Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. This week at FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.